The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversations of the tech world and beyond. But let me tell you, I, I'm pinching myself that we're actually about to have this conversation uh, because I think it's going to be the most fascinating we've had uh, on the podcast, bar none. And let me tell you why. So in 2017, I got a chance to spend some time with Jan LeCun. And Jan uh, was the head of Facebook AI research. Now you might know the company as Meta. He's the chief AI scientist there. And we spoke a lot about how you can actually take uh, the human mind and make it artificial, turn it into um, something that's an AI. And I think that that's making a thinking machine is Jan's long-term goal. Then this summer, uh, I you know had some time off and decided that I was going to read a book I wanted to get around to for a long time. It was Thinking Fast and Slow by the Nobel Prize winning uh, Professor Daniel Kahneman. And as I'm reading this book, I'm, I start thinking, wow, like Professor Kahneman describes um, the way the mind works in so many interesting ways um, that I hadn't thought about and ways that you'd imagine Jan would have to think about if he wants to build a thinking machine. And so why don't we just get the two of them together? Obviously, it was a pipe dream, right? Anyway, about a month ago, I'm in the same room as both of them by some stroke of luck. And um, I propose, you know, why don't we have this conversation? So, of course, I go up to uh, Professor Kahneman, we'll call him Danny for, you know, this uh, this conversation and say, um, and say, Hey, have you ever spoken with Jan? And it turns out that they've spoken <laughs> many times. And, uh, and, and this is discussions they've had in private a handful of times, but they've never had it in public. And so we'll have it in public today. So first of all, I want to say Jan and Danny, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both. So uh, I, I think we should just do the, the foundational stuff um, about about what Jan's mission is, um, a little bit on Danny's research, and then uh, actually stay tuned for the second half because Danny brought a list of questions that he wants to ask Jan, and I'll just take a back seat for that. Uh, but why don't we start here? Jan, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, if you could briefly share your ambition to build a thinking machine and like, what does that actually look like? Do you want to replicate the human mind one for one? No, I don't want to replicate the human mind. I want to understand intelligence. Um, uh, I think, you know, one of the most uh, fascinating questions of our time, scientific questions of our time, is uh, what is intelligence? How does the brain work? Uh, you know, the other two fascinating questions of our times are, are what is life all about and how, is the universe, how does the universe work, right? So, you know, th- these are like, you know, big questions. And um, as a... As, as, a, as a scientist and an engineer, I, 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 I consider that I don't really understand how something works unless I build it myself so, or, 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 or have some understanding of how to build it. And so the, the, the purpose of, of AI is uh, uh, there's, there's a dual purpose. One is understand intelligence, perhaps uh, approach models of, of human intelligence if we want. Uh, and the other one, of course, is to construct uh, interesting artifacts that can you know, help people in their daily lives and make the world better and everything. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's uh, it's really two two purposes: the scientific one and the technological one. 
Right. And just to follow up on that, I mean, I remember sitting with you uh, in your office talking about, you were talking about, you know, how, um, you know, you want to teach computers how to predict. And if they can predict, they can plan. And if they plan, they can start to um, have some some functionality that, you know, we have as human beings. And there is this rush towards general intelligence um, where where folks like you uh, and researchers in, in your in your stratosphere are attempting to build a thinking machine. That's right. Well, yeah. So the, I mean, the first question is, uh, or the first thing you can, you can notice in the animal world is that there is no intelligence without learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the engineering world, it's almost true as well. And it's probably because I'm either lazy or not smart enough to, that I think that as uh, human engineers, we cannot actually directly conceive and construct an intelligent machine, we have to build a machine that can make itself intelligent through learning, right? So that's how mm-hmm. I got interested in learning. That was very early on, like when I was an undergrad or something. And uh, and then the next question is um, how how to get machines to learn. Uh, and and of course, you know, there's a long history of uh, machine learning, you know, supervised learning, starting with the perceptron and 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 things like that. Um, and what what has become really clear over the last couple of decades. It was clear. It was even clear for people like Jeff Hinton before that, but uh, maybe just for me is um, is that the type of learning that we are currently able to reproduce in machine, which is supervised learning and reinforcement learning, do not seem to reflect what we observe in uh, humans and animals. There is another type of learning, another mm-hmm. paradigm of learning that seems to take place in humans and animals that allows uh, humans and animals to learn how the world works, uh, you know, mostly by observation, a little bit by interaction, but mostly by observation. And we, we accumulate enormous amounts of uh, background knowledge about how the world works. And that connects with what, with, with, with things yes. that, you know, Danny talks about. Mm-hmm. Of if, if we, if we have a model of the world, this model of the world can, we can use it to plan because we can imagine the result of, uh, the, the consequences of actions we're taking. That allows us to plan. So this is what Danny calls system two. Okay. And, but currently what we can do with machine learning is more like the system one, the stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. here is an input, here is an output uh, that does not re- require uh, uh, reasoning, if you want. So we're sort of, yeah. you know, I'm interested in sort of trying to uh, get machine to learn models of the world so that we can get them to reason, essentially. Yeah, it's so amazing to have you both on on the same uh, show because now we get to go to Danny to talk a little bit about um, these concepts in, in terms of the way that the human mind thinks. And then we can go back to you, Jan, and, and think about how we might be able to get that into AI. So, Danny, at the at the risk of uh, having you go through, um, you know, the free bird speech of, <laughs> um, that you make often, but I think it's important for listeners, especially those who haven't read the book, um, are you able to just describe um, a little bit more uh, what Jan is talking about in terms of the way human beings uh, think and, and, you know, talk a little bit. I know it's sort of a, a, a shortcut, but talk a little bit about system one and system two and, and give us an overview there. I would say that when we describe human intelligence, uh, we describe, we, we speak of a representation of the world. And, and it's the representation that leads to prediction that is, there is no shortcut to uh, the prediction from the data you go through a representation, which which includes how the system works. It includes the the causal relations. It, this is what enables you to predict. Uh, and 
And it turns out that we do have such a model of the world, and we we it's not so much that we have specific expectations about what's going to happen next. What is happening most of the time is that things happen, and then we make sense of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, we actually go back and fit them into what happened before. And quite often, you know, right right now, you're not predicting what I'm going to say next, but I'm not going to surprise you by what I say. Or, you know, if I said uh, lumber all of a sudden, I would surprise <laughs> you because it doesn't fit. But uh, so this is the way the, the most interesting part of, of this works. And what is remarkable from the point of view of the psychologist, there are many, many things, but that touch on, on what Jan is doing. What's remarkable is how little it takes, how quickly people learn, and and whether that, I think, is a fundamental puzzle. Uh, and, and it turns out that the representation of the world that we have uh, it's hard to imagine it completely without symbols. Mm-hmm. That is, in you know, the, we we do think symbolically, and how you represent symbols without using symbols is sort of a puzzle. So, uh, you know, I would I would ask Jan the question I've asked him before, which is whether solving a generic learning problem is enough to get all of that. That is, to get the system that we learn quickly and to get a system that uh, that will have the kind of logic that enables us that there is a certain kind of mistakes that people just don't do. And, uh, you know, so, so we have it that an object is not in this two places at once or basic facts about the world that – and. And there is sort of a certainty about it that seems to be difficult to achieve with just a, a system that learns approximately. So I was wondering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how Jan is going to deal with that. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, before we get into the answer, just a quick table setting. So the system one is the automatic sort of the things that we do without, without you know, thinking. And, and the um, system two is or what we would feel like we're doing without thinking, even though we might be in system two is more complex. Yeah. More complex. I was, so far I was talking, everything I was saying, you know, right. system one, basically. Yes. Because okay. I think the representation of the world uh, that we have and our ability to anticipate or to, or to, to feel, to feel unsurprised by, by what happens, which is, I think more than anticipating, uh, that is all system one. That's all, you know, that's all automatic. It's it's effortless and it's very quick. System two is we we'll get to system two, but solving yeah. system one seems to be a big one. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, we'll start on system one. Jan, your thoughts? Well, um, I mean, I agree with uh, with Danny that uh, current current AI systems are are you know very specialized, uh, and that makes them very brittle because they're trained for one task or maybe a, a collection of tasks. Uh, there's a sort of a, Emotion towards uh, training relatively large systems for multiple tasks at once, not not just one, because they tend to work better and require less data. 
but it is astonishing how fast humans and animals can learn uh, uh, new tasks uh, when faced with a sort of a, a new situation. How is it that um, you know a teenager can learn to drive a car in about you know ten or twenty hours of practice, or learn to fly an airplane in ten or twenty hours of, of practice? It's incredibly fast. Uh, if we were to use let's say reinforcement learning to uh, train a self-driving car to drive itself would have to drive itself for millions of hours and, and cause, you know, untold thousands of accidents and destroy itself multiple times uh, before it learns uh, to drive probably not nearly as reliably as, as, a, as a human. So what's the difference? Now, of course, you know, obviously we can say humans rely on their background knowledge about the world and that, Basically, is the answer to that. You know, we learn enormous amounts of background knowledge about how the world works. So we don't have to, when we learn to drive, we don't have to learn that if we drive next to a cliff and we turn the the wheel to the right, the the car will run off the cliff and nothing good will come out of it. We don't need to try because we know that from our model of how the world works, of intuitive physics and things like that. And and the this this type of model is what gives us, in my opinion, some sort of common sense. I mean, what we call common sense comes out of this uh, that prevents us from making the the really stupid mistakes that Danny was talking about that AI systems are doing currently. Um, so so how do we get machines to learn that? Um, you know, you you look at uh, how at what stage in their life uh, human babies learn basic concepts. Like, uh, what is the difference between an animate and inanimate object? Or I'm going to put this object on the table. Is it going to stay stable or is it going to fall? Um, that's around around the age of three months or so, uh, three, four months. Uh, difference between animate and inanimate also comes pretty early. Uh, object permanence comes very early as well. Uh, some, some people claim it's innate, not clear. Uh, and then there are concepts that, you know, we take for granted the fact that uh, objects that are not supported fall. They're subject to gravity. Uh, babies learn this around the age of eight months, eight to nine months. It takes a long time to understand that an object that is not supported will fall. Uh, it takes a long time to understand uh, momentum and things like that. Um, but then, you know, by by the age of nine months, and so in the first few months, you know, babies have very little uh, ability to act on the world, right? They Pretty much everything they learn is through observation only, um, and you know by by the time they are eight or nine months, they've they've, they've pretty much understood um, um, you know the physics of the world. And and babies are relatively slow. You take a baby cat; they understand intuitive physics incredibly quickly, and and their own the dynamics of their own body and everything. Um, so of course, you know it's not clear how much of this is hardwired, but um, but there is clearly a lot of learning taking place. This type of learning is the one that we don't yet know how to reproduce with machines. And I think, uh, I mean, that's where I focus my research. You know, what, what is this type of learning uh, that allows us to learn representations of the world and predictive models of the world um, that, uh, uh, you know, then allows us to learn new tasks uh, very quickly with very, you know, very few trials or, or very few examples. Um, and it's it's a very hot topic in machine learning at the moment, actually. Well, I'm curious about one thing. I mean, there, there are, that I know about, and I'm quite ignorant about it, but there are two tentative answers that I know about to solve the problem of the speed of learning. And one is that a lot of it is built in. So, uh, and, and 
And that looks very appealing because actually some animals really come out of the womb and, and they're ready to go. I mean, goats, mountain goats, uh, they, they know how not to fall uh, as soon as they are born. So uh, there it's difficult to think of learning. So nativism is part of the answer. Then there is something that I've been learning about, the, uh, the hierarchical Bayesian models, which is sort of a, a different, that there are logical structures that we are prepared for to organize the world that, that we see, and that this is part of what enables us to learn things very quickly. Now, I think you reject both of these. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> the first one only partially, because, you know, it's obvious that at least in certain species, including in humans, you know, a lot of things are not necessarily completely hardwired, but at least uh, we have sort of intrinsic motivation to learn them quickly, and uh, and it drives us to learn them quickly, essentially. And it's certainly true for, you know, baby ibexes and mountain goats and whatever. Um, and, and certainly for simpler animals, you know, like spiders and, and things like that. But, but it's, you know, even for, for an ibex uh, or a mountain goat, they, they still need to kind of learn a lot about, you know, the dynamics of their own body. That's, they are not hardwired with that. They are hardwired maybe with the geometry, but not with the details of it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can think of this as just being a few, a few parameters to adjust, but I think it's uh, much more, what, what goes on in the, the brain of the, the animal is much more complex than that. So I, I think there is a lot of learning uh, in there even if uh, in the end we can observe that uh, the learning takes place really quickly. Um, so, so then, um, and, and uh, you know, there, there is some, some evidence, um, um, you know, for, for the things that uh, a lot of people in cognitive science think or have thought in the past perhaps that were hardwired uh, for those things to be learned uh, because they can be learned really quickly. So, for example... Um, it's relatively simple. It would be relatively simple for genetics to encode the fact that the visual cortex uh, needs to be built with neurons that can detect oriented edges, for example, you know, the kind of stuff that we, uh, we find in the primary visual cortex area. Uh, but in fact, uh, we have now, you know, a dozen different learning algorithms that if we were to run them in real time in sort of a simulated animal, if you want, would learn those oriented feature detectors from almost random images within minutes. And so there is no point in hardwiring this because it can be learned within minutes. Same for face detection. So, uh, you know, you look at the brain and there are areas in the brain that light up when people are, are shown faces. And so an easy conclusion of that is, oh, you know, this area of the brain is specialized in face detection and it's hardwired and, you know, face detection is innate or face recognition is innate. But again, uh, face detection can be learned in minutes. If you're a baby, your virgence is bad, your your um, your focus uh, is is basically fixed at a relatively short range. So the only thing you see during the first weeks of your life are are faces and nipples, essentially. Um, so you know, and then and then you have a hardwired uh, thing to pay attention to motion. And so within minutes, you you're gonna have a face detector in your visual cortex. Uh, you know, any reasonable learning algorithm will learn this extremely quickly. Um, so you don't need this to be innate if you can if it can be learned. So that was, that's the first thing about the innate. You know, is it the case that the the fact that the world is three dimensional is innate? For example, it would make it would make sense, right? Because our world is three dimensional. All of uh, uh, evolution has always taken place in the three dimensional world. So it would make sense to kind of hardwire this in the in the cortex. 
then if you're an AI uh, scientist or engineer, you, it's like, how would I even define the, an architecture that has that hardwired? I don't even know how to do it. Um, and, and so it's not, it's not clear you can actually encode this in the genome. On the other hand, you can learn it really quickly because the fact that every point in the, in the world has a depth is the best explanation for how your view of the world changes when you move your head or where, or, or if you, you know, correlate the two views from your left and your right eye. And so learning things like very basic things like this, uh, is very simple. Uh, for whatever learning algorithm or brain uh, uses. So that's the first part about the, the sort of nature-nurture debate, if you want. Um, and, then, and then there is the second question of symbols, about symbols. Uh, so is it necessary to have explicitly hardwired mechanisms in our brain that allows us to do things like symbolic manipulation or reasoning? And I, I find that hard to believe uh, that, that, that they need to be hardwired. First of all, the, the question, the first question, uh, to you, Danny, perhaps, uh, which I've asked to, you know, m many people who've come up with that question is, um, do you view the type of reasoning that, let's say, uh, great apes do as symbolic? Or do you view what monkeys do as, as symbolic? Or dogs? Or cats? Or octopus? Um, do they do symbolic reasoning? Uh, so, and can we also just, for table setting, define the symbolic, what symbolic reasoning is? I don't know how to define it. Like, I'm, I'm not a big, <laughs> you know, advocate of uh, okay. the, the very existence of symbolic reasoning. So, okay. Uh, well, we'll toss it over to Danny. Yeah. Uh, I think that when we're talking about symbols, we're really talking about logical relations uh, at I, that's not an easy one to, to explain. <laughs> we understand each other, but, but it's yeah. hard for me to explain. Uh, it, but I think a characteristic of, of symbolic reasoning is, is a certain discreteness and, yeah. uh, and it's not, so it's not completely compatible uh, with what you have talked about. I mean, this is interesting what is happening here because, uh, I would, um, I would push you uh, with your idea that everything is has to be learned or can be learned very easily. I would push you down the animal uh, chain, uh, you know, where I think it becomes highly plausible. And you are doing the same thing to me with symbols uh, <laughs> by by asking me, you know, how far down do symbols go? And uh, and it's it's clear that the answer that you know, the, sort of the standard answer that that it's connected with language and that the symbolic system and the language system are related and therefore other animals don't have symbols in the way that we do. Whether that is really compelling, I'm not sure. That is in, in the sense, for example, that in, uh, in the hierarchical Bayesian models that, uh, that I'd like to get your, your evaluation of, but those are are supposed to take care of perceptual learning, and and with the, the the symbolic element or the logical element is sort of upstream of that in what categories of things there are, you know, what categories of structure there are that that, that you're about to learn. Right. So I, I think um, the 
there's, there's a number of very interesting questions there. So the first one is, uh, what do we mean by symbols, really? And if by symbol we mean uh, the ability to form sort of discrete uh, categories, uh, represent sort of discrete categories in our, you know, mental uh, representation system, um, then I think uh, pretty much every brain has some sort of symbolic uh, representation. And the reason I think this is that uh, discretizing uh, concepts, like having uh, identified categories, uh, makes memory more efficient, right? Because it, it makes uh, representation have the ability to be error corrected, right? So, so if I... Um, um, if I want to, if I write a zip code or, or a credit card number and you make a mistake on one digit, that mistake would be detected because, uh, when you make a, a single error on a, on a credit card number, uh, there is some self consistency, right? Uh, and that's because credit card numbers not only are discrete, you know, because they are, they are numbers, but they, they are actually some distance apart. Like two credit card numbers are some distance apart from each other. So if you make a small error, you can snap it back to the, to the correct one. You can detect the mistake and you can, you know, that's the, the basic of the basics of uh, of uh, error correction. So just for the purpose of being able to do error correction and for the purpose of being able to store concepts in memory, discrete concepts in memory efficiently, you need discrete representations. But now the big conundrum is, uh, so in a way, you need symbols. And I think if that's the definition of symbols, then I think dogs have symbols. Um, you know, I don't know if they can reason logically, I guess they have some logic, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, cats and dogs and probably mice even have, have this kind of, uh, uh, these kind of symbols. And what's a discrete representation? You know, it's the difference between a, a, a real number and a, and a natural number, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so if I... Uh, ah, so, if, yeah, if, yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah, so yeah. let's say I, I send, uh, I, want to, I want to send a number to you. And the only thing I have is a is a uh, electric wire, and I can send a voltage, right? So I can send a voltage, uh, you know, three volts, let's say. But then at your end, it may not be exactly three volts because there is resistance, impedance, you know, parasites, noise, whatever. So what you're going to observe is some sort of fluctuating thing that may be around three volts, but maybe a little shifted. But it's not going to be shifted all the way to four volts or two volts. It's going to be around three volts. So because you know that uh, the signals I want to transmit to you are either 0, 1, 2, or 3, or 4, you know it's going to be 3, right? So despite the fact that there is noise in the transmission, and despite the fact that the signal is continuous, you snap it back to its correct value, okay? Yeah. So, um, and then to store that value somewhere, because there is only, you know, five different possible values, 0, 1, 2, 3, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, uh, you can store it with a small number of bits. Um, whereas if you had to store a precise voltage value, it would require many bits, right? So discretization makes memory more efficient mm -hmm. and it makes uh, transmission either inside the brain or between, between uh, agents uh, uh, reliable. Um, it also, uh, you know, gives the possibility of associative memory. So if you have a, uh, in the brain, you know, if you, rep you know, the brain represents things with voltages, right? To, uh, you know, to first order approximation. Um, now, you know, there may be noise again in this rep in this representation, and uh, you know, you you may see a, a partial view of uh, of an image, and you can reconstruct the whole image because of your you know knowledge of uh, 
you know what what the what the system is, is supposed to look like. I, you may not, never have seen my my left side, okay, the left side of my face. But you, even if you'd never seen it, you you probably would have a pretty good idea of what it looks like because of your general model of uh, of uh, a human face and the fact that they are mostly symmetrical. Um, so that that's an example of kind of snapping uh, what's a, what's a noisy signal to uh, you know a, a perfect signal because of the maybe discrete, maybe not discrete, but at least the structure, the internal structure of uh, of, of what you of what what you're looking at, which your your brain has uh, has captured. Um, so uh, so discrete, you know that's that's what discrete um, why discrete symbols are are. Are interesting. It's the same reason, by the way, why all of modern communication use is digital. It used to be analog. It used to be that to communicate with each other, we would call each other on the phone, and it would just transmit a, a voltage directly, you know, from from my phone to your phone. Uh, but now we replace this with uh, digital communication with bits, and the reason is it's more efficient and you know more robust to noise, and there's all kinds of advantages. Our brains actually use digital communication internally. Uh, a neuron, you know, uh, neurons send spike to communicate with each other, uh, and the reason is uh, it's easier to um, regenerate a, a binary signal than it is to regenerate an analog signal, and it's more efficient energetically. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, good reasons for this. Um, so, you know, that may explain why symbols may emerge in uh, uh, represent all representations of the world, just for reasons of efficiency. Uh, and including for animals that do, do not have language. Um, now, of course, if you if you if you do want language, um, language is you know basically a sort of approximate way of representing the the sort of complex data structures that we have in our in our mind, and to serialize it so that we can you know um, put out on a single uh, one dimensional uh, signal, which is you know sound sound pressure. Or, or sequences of words, which are which are symbols. Um, and again, if if um, if I'm you know I'm talking to you through a microphone, it goes through the internet, and you know there's some noise uh, attached to that process. It's pretty high quality, but it's still some noise because um, because our language uses discrete words. Uh, we can uh, have uh, error correcting communication. So even if you don't completely understand all of the syllables or phones that I'm pronouncing, you can still kind of recover what I meant uh, because there is only a finite number of, uh, of words, right? And, and uh, you may not have heard all the syllables I pronounced, but uh, you kind of snap it back to uh, whatever makes sense in the context. In fact, you know, every speech recognition system works this way. They, they, they have sort of a language model. And even if they don't understand every sound, they can sort of reconstruct really what, what was meant. Uh, in my case, it's even harder because of my accent. So, um, so, so language has to be discrete because it needs to be um, because it needs to be noise resistant, essentially. Um, and 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 perhaps uh, you know, language was the the appearance of language uh, of symbolic language was uh, facilitated by the fact that you know we need to form. The equivalent of symbols or discrete uh, categories in our brain for efficient storage um, and uh, and 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 sort of uh, recovery, associative uh, memory recovery, possibly. Um, and so, it, so it's quite possible that you know uh, 
in the right condition, animals would have kind of more linguistic capabilities than we give them. And there's, there's a number of experiments, of course, on this that have been done with monkeys and parrots and, and whatever. So in some sense, it's the, the discretization itself is built in. That has to be, right? I mean, that, but what you're saying, there is no, no content or, or very little content that is built in. To the human brain at, at inception. Yeah. Is, that, is that the, yeah, okay. Well, I, I mean, the big question is where do the meaning of those, uh, of those discrete entities come from, right? Those, uh, and, and I, I certainly do not believe that, uh, those, the, the, the meaning of those discrete entities are, are predetermined in the, the human mind, certainly, and, and the animal uh, mind either. Those are completely learned. And so here is, come, here, here now comes the conundrum. So you're talking about hierarchical Bayesian systems. The, uh, in a sense, uh, multilayer, you know, deep neural nets are hierarchical Bayesian systems if you kind of view them the right way. And there are certain forms of, of them that are actually explicitly Bayesian. Um, the main question uh, in, in sort of the, the, the classical approaches to sort of Bayesian uh, uh, modeling is that the, the concepts in a hierarchical kind of Bayesian um, uh, graph, you know, a Bayesian network or a graphical model, you know, people give them different names. Uh, those concepts have, have to be designed by the, the human designer uh, when, when they build those, uh, those systems. And it, it's, it, clearly, it clearly is not happening that way in the brain. Those concepts are learned, right? So the, the basic entities that, that are manipulated uh, are, are those, those kind of, uh, you know, discrete concepts are, are learned. Okay, Jan, can uh, you, uh, sorry to ask, but can you just for the general audience um, describe hierarchical Bayesian sy- systems? Well, Briefly. okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it means... It means different things to different people, but there is sort yeah. of a classical view of it called Bayesian networks, where you you have uh, basically it's a graph. So a graph uh, in the mathematical term mm-hmm. is a collection of nodes that are linked by uh, by edges, and the, the 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 structure of this graph. So each node represents a variable. For example, um, so here's a classical example that uh, you know people cite in courses on the, on AI. Um, is a node that represents whether your 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 house is uh, uh, jumping, okay, or is moving. All right. Mm-hmm. Is another node that indicates whether a truck has hit your house. <laughs> okay. And then there is another node that indicates uh, uh, whether you know you're in California and whether there was an earthquake. Okay. So you could establish a a, causal, a causal relationship or at least a dependency between those nodes. You can say, well, if my if my house just jolted, it's either because a truck hit it, or because uh, there was an earthquake, and there's probably not many other reasons for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if I look at the window and I see that uh, a, a truck just hit the uh, just hit the house, it immediately lowers my estimate of the likelihood that there was a simultaneous earthquake, right? Because right. the likelihood of those two happening at the same time is uh, is very low. So that that's called the explaining away. Uh, Thing. So you could imagine sort of building uh, a network of, of those nodes where each node has a particular meaning. Uh, you know, for example, uh, some nodes are would be um, symptoms that you can observe in a person, and then underlying nodes that are causally uh, that causally influence it uh, would be sort of you know infection by a particular 
uh, bug or or whatever, right? And you could you could imagine building those things and then doing inference. So you know the value of some nodes, and you can infer the probability that all the other nodes that you don't observe have a particular value. I'm observing this and this and this and this symptom, and I have this graph, mm-hmm. um, and now uh, I've measured the blood pressure and the you know whether the person's tummy hurts or in particular way, whatever. And I conclude that, you know, it's probably appendicitis or whatever, you know. Um, so so you can imagine, uh, and in fact, you know, systems in the 1970s were built exactly on that model for, uh, for um, you know, ex- so-called expert systems or pro- probabilistic expert systems. Mm-hmm. And what we now call uh, Bayesian networks and hierarchical Bayesian models and whatever are kind of the descendant of this, if you want. Now, right. this does not involve any learning. All those things would be built entirely by hand, okay, mm-hmm. completely engineered, and that was essentially that that necessity was one of the reason of the the kind of decrease in interest in sort of uh, good old fashioned AI. Yeah, these were your competitors in the 1980s because the Bayesian, yeah, the Bayesian. Uh, it's like not necessarily Bayesian. Not. It could be completely logi- logical, right, right. And, okay, uh, uh, hard uh, hard decisions, but the fact that you had to hand engineer th- those entire systems from scratch. Uh, is kind of a little bit why kill them. Um, so the the alternative is running, but now you have the question: you know, how do, how do you learn those concepts? How do you learn that um, you know the the you want to do computer vision? The the nodes at the bottom level are pixel values. Okay, mm-hmm. what would be the right node just just above that represent good combinations of pixel values? How do you learn that? Turns out those combinations would be things that you know detect oriented edges, which is what you observe in the brain and what you know, convolutional neural nets actually learn, um, but that has to be learned. So, so then the, the 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 big conundrum is if a system is to learn and manipulate discrete symbols, and learning essentially requires things to be kind of continuous. How do you kind of make those two things compatible with each other? And the answer, I don't know. Um, maybe the answer is that, uh, we are giving perhaps a little too much importance to logical reasoning. So, uh, so it's one thing that, that Jeff Hinton is saying, which is, um, which I I agree with to a large extent, which is a lot of reasoning in, uh, certainly in animals and uh, in humans is not logical reasoning. It's, it's, it's basically simulation or analogical reasoning, which kind of similar. So, uh, you know, you are, uh, you're a lion in the savannah and you're kind of chasing, a, a wildebeest or something. And you have to do some prediction about the trajectory of the wildebeest and, uh, you know, work with the other lion or lionesses usually, uh, to kind of chase the animal in the right way. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that requires, um, uh, kind of, a, a you know, a, a simulation of the animal you're chasing. The, the best way to predict how the animal you're chasing is is going to act is to have an eternal model of 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 that that you can simulate. Uh, and it's the same like uh, so in a more kind of human situation of you know you want to build a widget like uh, a box out of planks or whatever. You have to have sort of a model in your mind of what would be the result of assembling those planks and you know how solid it is is, is going to be if you use glue or nails or screws or or or, or kind of more complex uh, uh, carpentry. Uh, and, and so the, so the, the, the key element in this form of intelligence is your ability to build models of the world, predictive models of the world. Uh, and that's what we're missing. 
Okay, that's what we need to figure out how to do with machines. And and you can do this. And I find this very convincing, actually. I mean, so so you can you can do this without symbols. You can do this without an explicit representation of causality. Uh, you just observe, and and from the observation, you can go directly to prediction. Right. Uh, so there there is going to be some causality involved. Uh, the question is whether you again need an explicit mechanism for causal inference. But uh, if um, if your model of the world includes the prediction of the next state of the world, uh, given the previous state and given your action, then you're going to build a causal model, right? Because you know that your action or the action you observe from other other people or other agent uh, will tell you if I take that action, I will get this result from this state, right? So so you will be able to establish causal models. Um, uh, if you can act or if you can determine that uh, another agent has acted and you've observed the result. I mean, and, mechanisms of that kind certainly exist, you know, in, in, in human physiology. So uh, yeah. any movement of the eye involves a prediction of what the world looks will look like uh, when your eye moves. And there are those beautiful Absolutely. old experiments where... Uh, People, in, in effect, you use curare to paralyze their eyes so they can't move their eyes. But when yeah. they intend to move their eyes, the world moves. And, That's right. And so they're anticipating. So, And that is clearly nobody would claim that there is right. any symbol or any causality required to do that. This is right. the kind of thing. So that would be your model for... Right. In fact, your perception of the world is not the world as it is. It's the world as... As it's going to be, because there is, you know, about a hundred millisecond delay between uh, what you see and, and how your brain interprets what it is. So, um, so in fact, uh, uh, your brain predicts a hundred milliseconds in the future. Your estimate of the world that you are conscious, uh, consciously aware of, uh, is was predicted from your perception from a tenth of a second ago. Um, and, and that, that takes place everywhere. So, you know, one of the current ma uh, main, uh, theoretical concepts in, uh, in, in systems neuroscience or computational neuroscience is this idea of, uh, of predictive coding, uh, where basically everything in the brain is trying to predict everything else in the brain and, uh, you know, predict future action, you know, future state of other parts of the brain and, 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 and things like that. Now, this doesn't mean that um, people who are, you know, pushing for this kind of uh, theory know how the brain works because between a, con a general concept of this type and sort of reduction to a practical algorithm, if you want, that you could sort of implement on the machine, there's a huge distance that has not been, uh, has not, not been bridged yet. So that, that's kind of a big program, I think, for uh, uh, science for the next few years. I was curious earlier, and it's a question I neglected to ask, but that was about uh, face detection and the existence of, you know, a face system. It seems to me that seeing your mother's face a lot uh, doesn't really equip you to distinguish between faces. That's right. And that's what the face system does. I mean, it's not it. It's not only recognize this is a face. It it is actually specialized. In identifying faces, that is, and and that uh, that ability to learn very quickly a distinctive face, that seems to be. I mean, you know, it's the same problem again. I don't. 
I don't quite see how that gets done. I don't know. Uh, you know, historically also in supervision, phase detection preceded uh, reliable face recognition by a decade or two. Uh, so we had reliable face detectors in the early 2000s and uh, reliable face recognition didn't pop up until 15 years later, r- roughly, with, with deep learning methods, actually. Um, and uh, it works surprisingly well. So you don't need a big neural net to be able to recognize um, you know, more identify people, faces, identify faces, and and have a system that recognizes recognizes more faces than any human can, with uh, you know the same level of accuracy. Uh, you know, maybe not with the same sort of robustness to uh, you know different uh, changes in pose and facial hair and things like that. But um, but in terms of number of uh, different people being able to put a name on, they're you know they're incredibly incredibly good, incredibly reliable. So it may not be that hard of a task as as we thought, uh, perhaps. I kind of thought that this was going to be a discussion more of how we could transpose the human, learn from the human brain and turn that into AI. But it seems like we're actually talking a little bit about how we can learn about the human brain from the construction of AI. I, I think that this is, I think that this is actually happening. Uh, but there, there is an interesting question to me as a psychologist. Uh, you know, it's it's a version of the Turing test. So, uh, what would it take to for the computer to fool you that it's that it's human? And and I was thinking that one characteristic of it is mistakes that strike us as absurd. That is, uh, and. They seem to violate some basic constraints. I mentioned earlier an object not being in, in two places. And there is, I think, a finite set of, of absurd mistakes, or am I wrong? And, <laughs> and would it be, would it be part of, I mean, would it be of any interest to have a system that makes the same mistakes, that, that avoids mistakes that people consider absurd and that makes mistakes of the kind that people tolerate. I mean, is there such a category of absurd mistakes in in your field? Well, um, it, well, there's different kinds of mistakes, right? I mean, there there are uh, computer vision systems that make stupid mistakes because so in the past, when computer vision systems, you know, were like maybe 15 years ago, computer vision systems were okay at picking out recognizing objects in images, but they were sometimes confused by the context. And and people, they were not confused by the context, they just were not using the context at all. And and so, you know, a system would make a mistake of recognizing a, a face that wasn't really a face, and from the context, you could tell it wasn't a face. Um, or, or would, uh, uh, you know, recognize an object that had, you know, the shape of, uh, I don't know, a cow or something. You can tell from the context that, you know, it cannot possibly be a be a cow if you are if you are human. Um, so that was a big um, criticism towards computer vision system. They don't take context into account. And now the criticism yeah. you see is that they take they take too much context into account. So there is this famous example of you know a modern vision system. I mean, it's a system of a few years ago. You train it to recognize you know things like cows and trains and airplanes and cars and stuff like that by showing you dozens of examples of each category, and then you show it. Uh, a cow on the beach, and it, it it can't recognize it as a cow because every example of cows uh, it's seen were were on you know green uh, pasture, 
Uh, and so the system actually learns to use the context and it uses it too much. And the context was, you know, uh, had a, a spurious correlation with the category. And the system doesn't have the common sense to say, well, that's a cow regardless of, you know, because a cow could be very well sitting on the beach. Um, and and uh, so then how do, you, how do you fix that, you know? Um, and, yeah, I mean, how and, do you get that common sense? I mean, that seems to you be... get that common sense, exactly. So I think this is not going to be solved, in my opinion, by, uh, you know, more tweaks on the architectures and more training data and things like this. I mean, it may be mitigated, but I think it's gonna, not going to be fixed by that. I think it's going to be fixed by systems that basically learn models of the world and then, you know, have the, the ability to tell that uh, it's perfectly possible that, you know... Uh, uh, you can cow be on the beach. That's the, I mean, that, that's the kind of compositional nature of, uh, of the world that, um, you know, even combination of things you've never seen can very well happen. And, and that is already happening. Not there really. Still- so, so there's a thing that very interesting thing that is happening, which is, um, uh, one of the hottest topics, as I was mentioning earlier uh, in, uh, in AI today is, or in machine learning at least. It's this idea of self-supervised running, which I've been a big advocate of for, for many years. And it's the idea that you, you, you train a system uh, not to solve a particular task, but to um, you know, basically learn to represent the world in sort of a you know, semi-generic way. And you train it by basically, uh, you, you train it to predict, essentially. Okay, so this works wonderful, wonderfully for natural language understanding system. The standard way nowadays that has become standard over the last three years of training a natural language understanding system is uh, you take uh, you take a, a sequence of words, a sentence, or something longer than that, maybe a few hundred words or a thousand words, and you you mask about ten or fifteen percent of those words. You you just you you replace them by a blank marker, and you train some giant neural net to predict the words that are missing. Okay. And in the process of doing so, the, the network learns the, the, the nature of language, if you want. Um, so, you know, it, it learns that if you say uh, the lion chases the blank in the savannah, the blank, you know, is likely to be something like a wildebeest or, or an antelope or whatever, right? Um, but if you say the cat chases the blank in the kitchen, that's probably a mouse. Uh, so a lot of semantics about the world, certainly the syntax, but also the sem- semantics about the world, uh, ends up being represented by this network that just is just trying to predict missing words, right? Um, now, of course, the system can never predict exactly which word is 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 missing. Um, you know, it could be antelope or wildebeest or zebra or whatever. Um, but it can easily represent uh, a distribution over words, like a probably a probability distribution over words, um, because there is only a finite number of words in the you know in the dictionary uh, in English, so. You, you just have a number, which is a score for how likely it is for this particular word to appear. And that's how the systems handle the uncertainty in the prediction. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the results are sort of amazing. You get text that sounds like text in a particular style, and, it, and it's coherent, and it's grammatical. And, right. Uh, and but it makes stupid mistakes. It makes it very makes, stupid it mistakes. It makes absurd mistakes. Absurd mistakes, yeah. Yeah. And... And I was wondering, uh, what does it say that it makes absurd mistakes? You know, it's a question that, you know, we talked about before, whether, whether it, do, whether it knows what it's talking about. 
and and the sense is that if you just merely predict words, uh, there is no content there. That that, that purely predictive system. Uh, well, no, I don't know. It there but, is a little bit of content, but it's very superficial, right? So the understanding of the world by those systems is superficial. There is some understanding, uh, but it's very superficial. So yeah, if you ask questions like. Um, uh, you know, is the fifth leg of a of a dog uh, longer than the other four? Um, you know, the thing will say yes or no, right? I mean, it, it won't tell you that dogs have, you know, have, have, have four legs, right? Um, and, and, you know, and, and things of that type. It, they can't count, you know. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that they can do, and it's because they don't have uh, any common sense, and it's because all of this learning is not grounded in an underlying reality. It's basically just from text. Uh, and the amount of knowledge about the world that is encoded in all the text in the world that those systems have been trained on, and it's billions of words, uh, is 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 not present. Like most of human knowledge is not represented in any text uh, in existence. Uh, for example, you know, I, um, I I I take a I take an object, I take my phone, and I put it on the table next to me, and I push the table. You know, because of your physical intuition, that the object will move with the table. When I when I push the table, the object that is on top of it will move with it, right? There, there is there is nothing in any text in any any part of the world that explains this. And so, a machine that is purely trained to predict missing words will not learn about this, uh, which are sort of basic, really basic facts about the world. So, I'm I'm one of those people who believes that uh, truly intelligent systems uh, will need to acquire knowledge uh, will need to be grounded in some reality. It could be a simulated reality. It could be a, a virtual world. Um, but Metaverse. it has to be an environment that has its own logic and its own constraints and its own physics. So, so you think that in principle, if you took those transformers and, and you put them together with... If you put them to work on videos... Right. If you... If you put language and videos together, is that going to be a qualitative advance? And, and is that beginning to happen? Well, uh, yeah. So yes and no. Uh, so I think, you know, you should start with, uh, just, just video. Like, can you, can you have, can you build a neural net that will, or some, you know, learning system that will watch video all day and basically learn basic concepts about, about the world just by watching video? The world is three-dimensional. There are objects in front of others. Uh, there are objects that are animated, animate. There are objects, you know, uh, whose trajectory is completely predictable in animate objects. There are objects whose trajectory is not completely predictable, like, you know, the leaves on the tree. But, you know, qualitatively you can. So there's some level of representation where you can predict what, uh, what those things do. Uh, and then objects that are very difficult to predict, they are animate objects, uh, humans and things like that, right? Uh, or chaotic systems and whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of research goes into this, essentially. None of them work at the moment. There's a lot of systems that attempt to do uh, video prediction and, and basically attempt to learn representations of the world that are in an abstract way, can, can learn to predict what's going to happen in the video in the long term. They all work within a few frames of a video, like a fraction of a second, but then um, the predictions go, you know, go really bad and, and the representations that are learned by those systems are not very good. We can, we can test them by using the representation as input to, let's say, an object classification system, for example, and, and measure, you know, how many samples does it take for the system to learn uh, 
the concept of elephant, right? Does it does it still need three three thousand samples, uh, training example, or would it would it work okay with three or four? Um, and those things, the answer is they training from video they don't work very well. There is one thing that is starting to work, and that gives us a lot of hope. Uh, so a particular form of self-supervised learning, where you you uh, you can assimilate the video if you want. So you take you take an image, and you uh, you transform this image in some way. You you change the colors a little bit. You you change the scale, the orientation. You 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 translate it a little bit. You do you do some you know manipulation to it. It's called data augmentation. And then you train a neural net or, or two neural nets rather um, to basically map those two images to the same representation, the same vector. Typically, it's a, a vector, right? A list of numbers, typically a couple thousand. Um, and so that's easy enough. You have two images that basically represent the same content, two views of the same object, for example. And you train the system to tell to tell you well the rep run a representation that tells you the content of the image and not the not the details. Um, the difficulty is how do you make sure that when you show two different objects, it will produce different representations. Um, and uh, the, avoiding this uh, this problem, this problem is called the collapse problem. And, and the, the big question is how you avoid this. So there's a lot of work now, really interesting work on uh, what's called contrastive methods and also non-contrastive methods to um, to do this. And uh, I'm I'm really excited about this uh, area of research because I think it's the germ. Uh, I think it's our best shot as to, um, you know, a path towards learning, you know, getting machines to learn abstract representations, uh, you know, and, and, and mark predictive models uh, where those predictive models will not take place in the space of pixels, but will take place in the space of or whatever it is that your, your, your input is, but in the space of abstract representations. But you think that the architectures that exist now will eventually, that is, it's not going to take a different architecture. Well, I think the, I think the architecture is not the the crucial question here. Um, I think the architectural components are already here. What I think is not here is the the whole learning paradigm. Uh, so let me t- let me take an example. Right, we can we can build a, a giant neural net where you you feed it a few frames of a video and you train it to predict the next frame or the next few frames. You can do this with least square, right? So just measure the the, the some of the square of the differences between the values of the predicted, predicted pixels and the pixels that actually occur in the video. And when you do this, the predictions you get from your neural net are blurry. You get very blurry images as the prediction. And the more you, you let the system predict far in the future, the more blurry the predictions are. And the reason for this is that you ask the system to make one prediction and the system cannot predict a priori if it's a video of us talking it cannot predict if I'm going to move my hands this way or I'm going to move my head to the left or to the right. And so the only thing you can do is predict some sort of average of all the possible things that can happen. And that would be a very blurry version of, our, of us. Um, and uh, so that's not a good, a good model of the world. Now, how do you represent the uncertainty in the prediction? So in the case of text, it's easy because it's discrete. You can just have a distribution over which word are possible. But, um, but we don't have a good way of representing distributions over images, for example. So that's why those techniques don't work currently for video prediction. And, and whatever uh, representations they learn actually are not, not very good. That's, uh, but, yeah. And that's because of the sheer complexity. I mean, is it a yeah. quantitative problem or, or is it a point where quantity becomes quality? 
No, no, it's it's not a it's not a question of you know we don't have enough data or computers are not powerful enough or neural nets are not big enough. It's a question of principle. It's a question. It's a it's a question of like what is the right objective function? What is the right way of representing uncertainty? Uh, and then technical questions like uh, what? Uh, how do you prevent this collapse? I was talking about which I didn't explain very well, but um, which is a more technical uh, issue. But but it has to do with basically representing uncertainty in the prediction. The fact that there are, you know, when you have an initial segment of a video, there are many, many ways to that are plausible to continue it. And the machine has to basically represent all of those or a good chunk of those uh, possibilities. And it would have to be predictive. That is, it, it couldn't work backward. It could work either, uh, both ways. Uh, it doesn't so even have to be temporal. It's the way that I think the mind works. Oh, yeah, sure. It, it really, you get prediction very short term, but... By and large, a lot sure. of it is simply making sense after the fact. You, you don't need to predict everything. Yeah. I mean, if you're a police inspector, you, you get to a scene and you have to basically figure out how it got there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's a sequence of events that, you know, uh, led to this. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, I, I use the example of uh, prediction of, of future event, but but it could very well be, uh, you know, prediction of things you do not currently perceive, right? So you do not currently perceive the back of my head, um, but you have a pretty good idea what it looks like. And if I show it to you, uh, then you, you know, you can correct your internal model. Uh, <laughs> you're not very surprised, but you know, maybe if I had a ponytail, you'd be surprised, slightly more surprised. Uh, so the, you know, the. It, it's not. It's not just prediction in time. It can be prediction in 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 space. You know, predicting a piece of an image from another piece, predicting a piece of a of a preset per that is currently occluded or not not uh, uh, no cannot be uh, obtained, uh, and and retrodiction. You know, predicting the past, which you have not observed from from the present. And maybe an evolution. So yeah, I'm not insisting that it has to be forward prediction. Forward prediction is is useful for for planning. So if if we're talking about uh, a form of reasoning that would be uh, you know planning a sequence of actions to arrive at a particular uh, result, then what you need is a, a forward prediction um, that will predict the state of the world as you know when you take an action. Well, I mean, you know, the amount of progress that that is occurring in your field is just amazing. It's, uh, I have a high time following. I'm very envious. I'm very envious because <laughs> now a few years ago, I think I heard you say about a, a research program that we have the cherry, but we don't have the cake. But yep. that's, you recognize that as Oh, absolutely! Uh, yeah, this has become a bit of a running joke in the in the in the community now. I, I use the analogy of the cake to say that to to basically sort of make very concrete the the fact that most of what we learn as as humans and animals and in in the future with that machine will learn uh, is learned in this kind of self supervised manner, basically by watching the world go by and by you know taking an action once in a while, but in a in a you know non-task uh, specific way, learning how the world works, uh, self-supervisioning. That's the bulk of the cake. So if intelligence is a cake, the bulk of the cake is this type of learning. That's where we learn everything. And then there is a, a thin layer of, uh, of uh, you know, sweet, 
Well, there, there, well, there is uh, supervised learning, right? You're taught at school, or your parents, you know, teach you something, or you, you read you read a book, or whatever, or you, you know, you show a, a young child a, a picture book, and you say that's an elephant, and you know, baby say elephant, and with three examples, the baby has figured out what an elephant is, a toddler, what an elephant is. So that's supervised learning, and then there is reinforcement learning, where you learn a new uh, skill by trial and error, and you know, you 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 get rewarded by your own uh, success or, or, or not. And, and that was the cherry on the cake. The, the supervised learning was the, the icing, if you want. Um, and this was sort of a, a metaphor to, to tell people, like, you know, we, we're currently focusing on the icing and the cherry, but we haven't figured out how to bake the cake yet. And so I, I used this joke saying that, you know, this was the, the dark matter of intelligence, because uh, you know, it's kind of like physicists, right? They they tell you dark matter exists, and and it's you know, most of the mass in the universe is dark matter, and they have no idea what it is. It's very embarrassing. So we're in the same situation. Uh, again, a physicist, it's even worse because there's dark matter and dark energy, and the, con- the combination of the two represents something like ninety five percent of the mass in the universe. So that's really really embarrassing, and we have no idea what it is. Um, so we're in the same situation, which means, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Um, understanding is. I mean, is the progress in your field exponential? Yeah, but before you answer, I, I mean, I'm just watching the clock. You guys can go as long as you want, but I'm just no. saying that whenever oh, you're ready. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm passing my hard stop. Just okay. to answer this question. Okay, sounds good. I think um, I think it's increasing because the, the there is more and more people joining the party and and more and more you know governments and 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 companies investing money in it. So you see uh, you see a growth you see a growth in applications. You don't necessarily a growth uh, an exponential growth in sort of new concepts, but there are new concepts that are coming up at a surprisingly um, uh, high speed. And so I guess one big question is. Uh, so you know, one question is: Are we going to have another uh, AI winter like like there were in the past? And my answer to this is probably no, or at least not to the same extent that we had in the past, because there's a big industry now behind um, uh, behind AI. It's useful for a lot of things. You know, you take you take deep learning out of uh, you know Google and Meta and a few other companies, and they they, they crumble. I mean, they're completely built around it now. So. Um, uh, and, and certainly there's a lot of other areas also. Um, so, so I think it's not, it's not going to collapse as, as it used to. The question is, are we going to make this next step towards, you know, machine common sense, uh, self-supervised running, et cetera, before people funding all of this get tired? And that I don't know the answer. <laughs> I'm just hoping that, you know, we, we make progress fast enough. Fascinating question. Thank you, Jan. Well, thank you. Thank you, Danny. It's always always a pleasure chatting with you. And, and thanks to both of you. It's it's amazing to to uh, hear you talk about this. Um, I feel like I was just in like an ultra graduate level course. We should have more psychology and AI together uh, because this is, I think, like it's just amazing to hear you guys bounce these concepts around. And in terms of energy, uh, Jan, clearly there's energy in the field. It's amazing <laughs> hearing you. Um, you know, no drop from the five years we've we've known each other, maybe even more. So um, thank you, Danny. Thank you, Jan. So great having you here. Um, was, yeah, let's let's do it again. It's a pleasure. Yes, I'd yeah. love to do it again. Thank you. Okay. Alex. All right. You thank guys. you. Uh, take care, Danny. Thank you to Nate Gwatney for uh, doing the editing, uh, Red Circle for hosting, and all of you, the listeners. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday for another episode of the Big Technology Podcast. Until then, we'll see you.